Hello and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Ed Kane. I'm a member of the Pratt's Board of Directors. And on behalf of our CEO, Carla Hayden, I wanted to welcome you here to the Enoch Free Library and to our great Central Hall, um, our Grand Hall in the Central Branch, rather. Um, tonight's appearance by our very special guest has had town a buzz for a while now. Blogs have been buzzing, Twitter's tweeting, um, and I think it's been the talk of Facebook for a while. Um, so I think everybody's excited, and uh, judging by the size of this crowd, um, there's a lot of excitement in this room, and people are really looking forward to it. It is indeed our pleasure to have uh, Czech Polonik here in Baltimore and at the Pratt Library, particularly coinciding with the uh, publication of his latest novel, Pygmy. Um, Pratt really has become the spot in Maryland for authors passing through on their tours. The honor of presenting our guest uh, does not actually fall to me, but it falls to one of uh, this area's more recognizable personalities, at least by voice. He can be heard every week on Maryland's NPR station, WYPR, um, doing his show, The Tapestry of the, of the Times, which is really a great program. He's also co-creator co co of the and producer of The Signal, and he's a regular contributor to Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Day to Day in the World. Um, he's a regular guest host on American public media program, The Story, and he's got a weekly podcast called NPR Station Showcase with PRX. So on behalf of Dr. Carl Hayden, the board and trustees and directors of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, um, I'd like to welcome for, uh, to present our special guest to you tonight, WYPR's Aaron Hankin. Hello, everybody. I must uh, say I had a fluttery little man moment just uh, about a half hour ago when I, I, I got to meet uh, Chuck myself. I told him about when I went and saw Fight Club, whatever, 10 years ago, I was uh, on a date. I took a date. Uh, <laughs> it did not go well. Uh, after, the the uh, girl afterwards was sort of like, oh, what was, what was that? And I was, I was like, oh, come on, let's fight, come on! Uh, so um, I'll keep this introduction brief. We'll get to the main event here. I'll uh, introduce Mr. Polinick using his own words, a man who is as innocent as a tumor and as harmless as a psilocybin toadstool. Please help me welcome Chuck Polinick. Camille's here. So, when I was 18, when I was 18, I worked for the Oregonian. It's a newspaper in Portland, and my job was to deliver advertising proofs with a lot of other 18-year-olds who rode bicycles and deliver ad proofs. And one of the guys I work with, one day, just once, told me the following. He said, uh, testing, testing. He said, "'Twas brillig in the slidey tovas, did gyring gimbal in the wabe, all mimsy with the burrogrovas, the mamras doth grabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch, Beware the juju burden, shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxim foe he sought, till rested he neath the tomtom tree and stood a while in thought. And while in uppish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulji wood and burbled as he came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head, he went galumphing back. Hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kaloo, kale. He chortled in his joy. 
Twas brillig in the slithy tovas, did gather and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy with the burrogrovas, and the mamras doth grabe. I don't even remember that kid's name. <laughs> but he said that poem once, and he said, Lewis Carroll wrote this poem not to write a nice poem. He wrote this to make fun of Scottish people. <laughs> because most of these are invented words that are invented just because they sound great. And you still understand the poem. He made up maybe 70%, 80% of that language, and you still understand the poem. And that is so, what's so great about human beings is that I'll say the crow flies at midnight and you'll develop a whole story to explain what I meant and then you'll fight amongst yourself about what I meant. I didn't mean anything. And so I wanted to kind of do that Lewis Carroll thing where after so many years of so many teachers trying to teach me how to write clearly, I threw it all out the window. And a couple years ago, I was in Germany. Well, I was going to Germany. The German publisher wanted me to come and, and visit a lot of cities and promote my books in German. And I had two years of German in college, so I was so confident. I was, all, I was as confident in my German as only an American be, can be. <laughs> And I hired a tutor, a friend of mine, and she sat with me three days a week and we just practiced our Deutsch. And when I got to Germany, I said, I don't need a translator, I don't need a publicist, I'm going to go on the radio and on the TV and I'm going to sprechen Deutsch. <laughs> and I went on Deutsche National Radio, German National Public Radio, and I did my Ah, ich spreche Deutsch routine. And I came out of the booth, and the publisher was just livid. She said, uh, Were you trying to be funny? Was that your idea of a big joke, what you said in there? Because it wasn't funny, it was incredibly offensive. I have no idea what you were even trying to say in there. What? What? What were you trying to tell everyone in Europe? And I said, Ich habe seit zwei Jahren Deutsch studiert. Es tut mir leid, aber ich habe doch so viele Deutsche. And then I got to the verb. And I, the verb, I know the verb is vergessen, to forget. I have studied German for two years, but I am sorry I have forgotten so much German. And I thought vergessen, vergessen was an irregular verb and that it conjugated in the past perfect as vergost. And she says, no, vergost is the past tense of to gas, to death. And when you speak German with a shitty American accent <laughs> and you say Deutsche instead of Deutsche, you're saying German people. And what you just told all of Europe is, I'm really sorry that I gassed so many German people to death. <laughs> Bist du ein fucking retard? <laughs> Kein Deutsch. And after that, I was terrified. So I took maybe the six words of German that I knew that I knew, and I tried to make the entire German language out of them. Heute, Wein, Bier, Bitte, and none of them are verbs. So, that is kind of how pygmy came into being. Somebody trying desperately to make an entire language 
out of the most inappropriate words. And tonight, what I plan to do is to read three fairy tales that would be the fairy tales that were read to Pygmy, the bedtime stories of Pygmy that he knew from his growing up, his being indoctrinated in this unnamed totalitarian fascist country that he is uh, he shipped from. So we're going to hear the, the three bedtime stories, which are actually called Three Case Study for Generate Correct Right Thinking Perception Among Modern Citizen Youths of Today. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first of the three bedtime stories. The first bedtime story is Case Study Operative Family Bear Mammals. Existed once time, traditional heterosexual family unit composed mother bear mammal, father bear mammal, offspring bear mammal. Existing as proletariat family, laboring for to bring total fruits, much future success to this, the most glorious nation state. As solely correct example, noble family of bear animals occupy modest cottage containing practical, durable furnishings with foodstuffs provided by glorious, most generous state. As every all esteemed bear mammals native to state, mother bear animal, father bear animal, offspring bear animal, all boast coats of most deep fur coloring. All bear mammal display much strong vigor, great courage and intellect, performing top joyous to labor lifetime in dedication to enlightened vision of state. Occurring one occasion, did mother bear animal prepare breakfast meal consisting of stewed porridge through generous wealth, fuel wood provided by state, did finished porridge occur too vastly heated for immediate consumption by animal family. Instead, voted bear animals to labor, to vacate most comfortable domicile, and make labor within glorious salt mine, harvesting salt for the more greater glory of this top glorious national homeland. During absence, bear animal from immaculate state-provided domicile did arrive American trespasser criminal, <laughs> head of trespasser American festooned decadent golden hairs, devil American criminal, in actual degenerate spoiled female youth did violate vacant domicile of noble, much-laboring bear animals. Thereupon did American devil youth gorge own self, consuming stewed porridge of breakfast meal, vociferous to declare initial hearty porridge of bear animals too heated, next porridge too chilled. Final porridge did glutton American greedily fully theft. Perhaps possible, perhaps possible, such youth, related sister sibling of corrupt American heiress, Paris Hilton. <laughs> perhaps merely coincidence. Perhaps all every citizen United States such finicky demon, always every too hot, too cold, too dirty too infested with lice, foreign foodstuffs, always too imbued with rodent feces, too covered with larvae of black housefly, no, never nothing, ever good quality enough for choosy American tourists. Upon devastate breakfast porridge, did devil American of golden hairs experience extreme sloth, such typical of United States youth. Investigating state-provided sleeping mats, did devil child once more declare initial mat field too solid, declare second mat too yielding? Upon third sleeping mat, did lazy, slothful trespass criminal achieve slumber 
sweet, much deep slumber. Next now, trio mighty proletariat bare mammals return subsequent, diligent laboring in glorious salt mines of state, mother bear animal, father bear animal with offspring, did repeat enter own domicile, did discover breakfast meal of stewed porridge consumed by trespasser. Next then did trio of bear animal family make discovery of slothful American burglar making slumber upon state provided sleeping mat. Same now, golden hair criminal awake in manner of selfish coward American make scream most loud prior to attempt flee, springing for escape fate. In vain did American devil thief leap from sleeping mat for attempt evade noble bear mammal. Nevertheless did claws of mother bear mammal seize trespasser by golden hair, halting escape. Next, quick, now did savage jaws of father bear mammal sink jagged teeth into screaming windpipe of imperialist criminal. Entire domicile filled dying screams spouting blood of decadent state enemy. Only last did offspring bear animal plunge own immature claws within ribcage of trespasser criminal, seizing alive spasming heart muscle to rip free of chest cavity. No digested porridge of breakfast meal did pour from eviscerated bowel flesh of escaped criminal. Within next now, criminal slaughtered and bare family feasting upon hot, steaming corpse. Pausing only moment so enabled trio of such noble, laboring animal for crane all heads backward upon necks, making vast howl in unison. Howling over devastation of defeated American, did bear family shout, every all glory to be accomplished in honoring philosophy, the single correct homeland state. Now you can see why every time I sit down to try to write fiction, and it kind of serves me right because I use Microsoft Word. <laughs> but every time I sit down and start to write, this little paper clip comes up. with the little bug eyes and the big exclamation point, and it says, I see you're trying to write literary fiction. <laughs> Perhaps I can help. And I'm always like, no, it's okay, it's my job. Thank you very much, little paperclip. But I think I can handle it. And I get a little into it, and the paperclip comes back and says, your verbs don't agree with your subjects, and you keep switching verb tense, and your spelling is atrocious. Maybe you let her, better let me handle this. And I'm like, don't you have some papers to clip, Mr. Paperclip? <laughs> I swear I've done this before, it's okay. And I keep typing. And eventually the little paper clip is reduced to pop back up and saying, you suck. <laughs> and I'm reduced to saying, fuck you little Mr. Paperclip. <laughs> if I could disable you, if I knew how to do that, I would be doing that. We've got cell, cell phone reception in here. It is Joyce Carol Oates, and she's sexting me again. You do not want to see this. Yeah, thanks for calling me back. 
Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not doing anything. Go ahead. Yeah, there's some people here. Yeah, no, it's just my family. She wants to say hi. Say hi. Say hi. Did you hear that? Say hi, Joyce. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I just wanted to talk to you because you, you know so many words. And I thought maybe I could hire you to teach me some words. Uh-huh. Where'd you get your words? No. She says trade secret. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Okay. All right. I'll call back another time. Bye-bye. Liar. You'd think a writer could lie better than that. She says she uses something called a thesaurus. She says it's a book just filled with different words, and whenever you need a word, you just open the thesaurus and choose a word. But what she doesn't know is I saw Jurassic Park. (laughs) And I know what a thesaurus is. And I remember when Laura Dern said, run for your life, the thesaurus is out. (laughs) I'm going to read another bedtime story. Case study, case study operative witch. Occurred once time among past years, much glorious history of this national state homeland existed most wily, clever female comrade witch, boasted such brilliant citizen witch, much copious intellect, Lobert labored much time, noble witch, for to construct entire own domicile, entire freestanding residence structure, employing solely sweetened confections, pastry-baked goods, such variety, decadent luxury commodity. Fabricate so brilliant, comrade witch. Entire edifice crafted of many tasty sugar candy. For fireplace, chimney brick, composed infinite block peppermint candy. Shingle of domicile roof layered, waterproof from numerous narrow shingle licorice candy. House shutter? For a shuddering window, shutter labored of dense chocolate fudge candy. Side every wall composing house builded from bread of ginger, embedded using corrupt amounts such delicious raisin fruit with generous fragments crushed walnut. Talented citizen witch, exhaust much state resources, squander such vast quantity time for a wreck so tempting, tempting yum-yum house of sweet corruption. Despite seeming waste such effort, in secret, comrade witch, much stealthy predator, constitute brilliant political ally of state. Forever, forever crafty witch possess mind Utilize thinking machine of ticking clock. Forever citizen witch, patient, await. Cunning comrade witch, serve constant vigil. Every today, every passing night of today, until able listen, able witness with sensitive witch ear, sound of greedy American children's endeavoring for consume candy domicile. Typical such selfish American children's. American children's envision all total world planet crafted for solely satisfy own such greedy hungers. United States children's forever reading silly book. Forever listen with ear Sony Walkman device. Every forever such devil children's immobile immobile upon luxurious sofas for to view antics of American television street of sesame. (laughs) So wicked. All American citizens such wicked. 
traveling duo, male boy with female girl children's, firstly approach Candy domicile en route along pathway traversing forested, much dense forested portion of this most glorious national state, experience such vulgar American children, no present hunger, yet eager youths commence for gnawing upon bread of ginger house, vapid American tongues lapping sweetness from fudge chocolate window shutter, Degraded, depraved, children tooth masticating for destroy all labor and resources of citizen which so merely digest and render as useless American feces. <laughs> Upon discover such United States vermin, crafty citizen which announce, much welcome, hospitable which bid devil children's devour until sated. Much admirable citizen which display infinite patient for allow insatiable vile children chew swallow, chew swallow, macerate sugary charms of clever candy house. Bid, bid crafty citizen witch, invite children, say, please, gluttonous guest children's, say witch, Please share limited bounty of global petroleum resources. <laughs> much wise, much prudent comrade witch bid children's please no longer export such vast degenerate product of American cultural imperialism. Still, such evil children's no exhibit shame, no demonstrate remorse merely remain greedy ravages plaguing locusts. Next now, mighty righteous witch subdue children's. Witch execute exact perfect wham-pow. Zebra death kick maneuver. For render children's no conscience. Victorious long-suffering citizen witch mount for to bugger children's. Happy most succeeding witch bugger 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 upon no conscious rapacious United States children's bugger, 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 now victorious witch, mighty witch, champion, hero witch, sever ever, every all-blood vessel of American gluttons, cleave unto pieces, riving apart arm and leg limbs of selfish children's, top most thriving comrade witch, witch teeth consuming alive meat, muscle, spouting blood of slothful Americans, Drenched in much hot blood of United States oppressor children, citizen witch shout, screeching loud shout. Every all glory to be accomplished in honoring philosophy, the single correct homeland state. And I have had my name butchered enough not to even attempt yours. So, Mr. Aaron. That was pretty intense. I would love you to read you the guts story, but it might be inappropriate for the library, so. <laughs> I'll think about it, okay? So uh, there, there is a way to get the, that paper clip to go away. On your Word, Microsoft Word. But you have to ask the paper clip how to, how to do it. I'm not speaking to the paper clip. Um, okay, so uh, for, first question for you, sort of a, an obvious one. Um, and that is, um, uh, if you could fight one other author, alive or dead... <laughs> Who, who, who would it be? I'm going to go for the crowd favorite and say Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> because he was a drinker, so I could probably kick his ass. He, he might unleash some you know, medieval, mystical stuff on you, though. But... Or typhoid. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, but ha are you, uh, have, have you ever been in a fight before? I mean, are you a fighter? What's the worst one you've ever been in? My dad was a boxer in the Navy, and so we had all of these boxing trophies uh, 
by the dining room table. I say dining room. The area of the trailer with the dining room table. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew my parents, I knew my father wasn't coming back after the millionth trial separation when the boxing trophies all disappeared. But my father was really big on my brother and I boxing. And so we did that as little children. And then it wasn't until I'd given up on my liberal arts degree and I was drinking away my 20s that I was in a lot of fights at that point. But the one glorious thing I found that if I looked really, really messed up, and this is really where Fight Club came from, the more messed up I looked, the more people would look here. They would look at my chest instead of my face. I could never get eye contact because they just never wanted to say, oh my God, what happened to you? There was only one very elderly sort of joy luck club woman at the laundry I went to. And one day I went in and uh, I would always go in after the gym and I would pay her and my money would be all sweaty. And she'd always say, ah, this is my wet. And one day she went, oh, what happened to you? And she was the only person who would say, you must have a terrible life. Did you, did you want people to ask? Or were you happy having people avoid what they were seeing? No, it was kind of nice. It was like having a, a form of power, being the invisible man. Is that, you know, people would talk about everything else. And I really felt like I, you know, I had more power in that situation where I was not being addressed than I would if, if people were actually making that hideous small talk. Did you see Seinfeld this weekend? So this is, this is good advice for shy liberal arts majors. Just get in lots and lots of fights, look horrendous, and you'll, you'll, uh, you'll be properly avoided. Yeah, and, and then live to write about it. Well, um, you know, obviously, as people read your books, whichever, whatever the book may be, the, uh, the real question is, like, um, who is this guy behind this uh, Microsoft Word program who's creating these worlds. Are you a sort of a, a gentle, contemplative person who, you know, sips tea and puts some opera on while you're writing your stories? Or are you like, you know, on, on the verge of a, some horrible psychopathic breakdown? <laughs> um, my degree my $35,000 liberal arts mistake was a degree in journalism. (laughs) I feel your pain, print journalism. Print journalism, you might as well just study bloodletting. I've got a useless degree that's completely out of date. Um, And in a way, I only got that degree because I needed an excuse to be with people because I'm kind of culturally autistic and stupid. And I need to have a role to play to kind of interview people. And even now, what I tend to do is I'll take one archetypal event from my life. My first day at Freightliner Trucks, which was my job after college. I worked on the assembly line building Freightliner Trucks. And I was going to do it for six months until I could afford to move to Seattle. I did it for 13 years. (laughs) I did it for 13 years until the Fight Club movie came out. But my first day at Freightliner, my foreman said, uh, okay, new hire. They don't even bother to learn your name for six months. They call you new hire. We need you to go up to the next workstation on the line and get our squeegee sharpener because those pricks borrowed it and they never brought it back. And if you can't do this one stupid job, get the squeegee sharpener back, then you're fired. So I went up to the next foreman and I said, you know, uh, Glenn down here says you got something called a squeegee sharpener and it's ours. And Glenn tore me a new asshole. (laughs) And he said, you got to go offline to get that. And he sent me to another department and they tore me to shreds, and they sent me to another department, and they tore me to shreds. And I spent that whole eight-hour shift just being abused by people I'd never met before. And the only thing I learned was that there is no such thing as a squeegee sharpener. (laughs) 
But that was the trial by which I introduced myself to every foreman that I might possibly ever have to work for. And I learned the entire layout of the plant, all the other build-up departments. And I told that story. And easily a hundred people told me hideous, infinitely more hideous versions. One guy, a pediatrician, a pediatric surgeon, said, oh boy, that's nothing. He said, when I was a resident at the Oregon Health Sciences University, they wait until you've been on call, that you've been on for 36 hours, and you haven't slept more than 10 minutes in 36 hours, and you've eaten nothing but vending machine snacks. And they wait for you to lie down on a gurney in a hallway and catch a catnap. And then they announce, and this is 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, Dr. So-and-so to room such-and-such, stat. And it's you. And they keep announcing that over and over, ear-splittingly loud, as you race through this enormous hospital complex. And finally, you get to this wing that is almost never used, that kind of nightmare wing. And as the elevator doors open, and they're still saying your name, stat, get to this room, stat, code blue. And you are running down the hallway with your white coat flapping, and you can hear screams coming from this room. And you throw the door open, and the room is kind of, there's all these curtains, all the curtains are drawn, and it's draped in this odd way, and all the lights are really, really low. They're like lying on the floor. There's even lights under the bed. But you don't think about this, because as you walk through that doorway, there is a naked woman lying in bed screaming, and she is covered in blood, and something hits you in the chest, and you instinctively catch this thing, this sticky thing, and this woman lying in bed is screaming, you killed it, you son of a bitch, you killed my baby, you killed it, and you're holding a bloody dead baby. And the reason why the room is draped like that is that every doctor and nurse on staff is hiding in that room (laughs) because they all want to see this happen. And the woman lying in bed is a nurse. And the baby is such a real baby because it's one of those CPR babies that's waited to feel exactly like a baby. And the blood is so sticky and so coppery because it's real human blood. And I'll skip you through to one of the best stories. But I was in France. I was in France and I told my now lame-ass squeegee sharpener story. And a man came up and he gave me his card. He's a doctor of veterinary medicine in French. And he said, uh, it is, in France it's almost impossible to get to, into the Academy of Veterinary Medicine There are so many applications, and they take so few students. And I had to apply for seven years, but I finally got in. And when you finally get into this very elite group, they throw a party for you because they so want to congratulate you on becoming a member of this small, small academy of veterinary studies. And you're in one of the labs late at night and you're drinking and you're drinking and you're drinking and they're toasting you and they're they're toasting you and you're so happy. These are all of your professors and your advisors and the other members of your program. They're all so loving and affectionate. And you drink until you pass out. And if you don't pass out, they put an animal tranquilizer in your wine. (laughs) And when you're passed out in the middle of the night in this empty, huge building, they take all your clothes off and they wad you up really tight like a baby. And then they very, very carefully sew you inside the belly of a gutted dead horse. (laughs) And he says... Of course, you have no idea where you're waking up. (laughs) But you wake up, and you are cold. You are freezing cold, and your head just pounds from this chemical that they've given you. And you are so sick, you can barely keep from barfing, and it stinks. 
and you can't move. You're bound so tight inside of this, in, this sort of enclosure of some kind, this sticky, freezing cold, pitch dark enclosure that's slightly stretchy. <laughs> but they can, you can hear them in the darkness around you. And as soon as you move, they see you move and they start shouting, fight! You've got to fight to be in this program. You think you could just pass some tests and fill out some forms and be one of us? No, if you want to be a veterinarian in France, you've got to fight. You have got to fight to be on our level. So either you fight or you're dead. And so you start to press against the darkness. And you press and press and press until you tear an opening. And then you birth yourself from this cold, dead thing. And as you emerge naked and bloody and freezing and shaking, they put a glass of wine in your hand and they say, now you are a French veterinarian. <laughs> But... But that's still pretty much what I do is I look for an archetypal thing from my life And I, and I share it and I give people the opportunity to tell me the version from their life because these are kind of classical stories that in the future, no matter when you're a veterinarian, no matter how many puppies and kitties and canaries die on you that day, it is never going to be as bad as waking up inside a dead horse. <laughs> and almost all of your colleagues that you will ever work with, they have all woken up inside the dead horse. So you share this single horrific experience. And, uh, and so that's still what I do is, in a way, this kind of field study, almost anthropology kind of journalism work. So there is hope for you. Yeah. <laughs> Pay those loans back. Well, you, um, and I'm sure that story sounded much more charming with a French accent. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned this idea of... Uh, collecting stories uh, of, a, of similar archetypes, and you actually refer in um, one of your nonfiction pieces to the idea of crowd seeding. Um, so I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how, how much of you know, your circle of friends and acquaintances and just people who you encourage to tell stories, how much of that ends up um, you know, sort of thrown into the creative blender of, of your fiction. A great deal, I'm sure. You have a lot of angry friends who've shown up as uh, unpleasant portrayals in your... You know, and they're not, uh, not necessarily all friends. <laughs> Because people are really, really... I think the only way that people have of digesting experience that is either extraordinarily good or extraordinarily bad, the only way they have of digesting it and assimilating it into who they are is by telling it like a story. So that's why everybody ends up on their cell phone at Starbucks saying, I can't believe it. He dumped me. I can't, he dumped me. He said that I am too this or I'm too that. You hear people compulsively, endlessly telling their stories. And when we dream, we're still telling our stories. We are still like a cow chewing its cud, trying to break down these things that we can't be with. We're trying to process them to the point that all the emotion is burned out of them. And... And because I, I recognize that people want that opportunity, that if I bring up a topic that's kind of the metaphor I'm working with, I allow sometimes thousands of people to contribute illustrations from their own lives that illustrate that metaphor much more, much better than me with my kind of boring small life could ever, ever illustrate it. I mean, I worked for 13 years in a plant with a concrete floor building trucks, My experience is incredibly limited, but... But at that same time, in the evenings, or on the weekends, you were volunteering, uh, escorting hospice patients around. Which is a lot less exciting than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, my job as a, as a volunteer escort at this hospice was to pick up relatives of dying people and to bring them to the hospice and to make sure that they got around the city okay. And those are people who desperately need to tell their stories because they're experiencing something that they cannot be with whatsoever. So in a way, even in that context, what I'm being is just a, a listening. In a way, 
when I was little, I wanted to be a priest. Because I loved the idea of sitting in that black little room and pulling up the screen and hearing everybody's worst experiences. But then people said, you can't tell them. (laughs) And so now what I do is still kind of that priest thing, but I get to continuously sort of roll them into stories and use them. And you've been um, present at a lot of different uh, support group meetings uh, of various folks with various addictions and illnesses, and that's, you, you talk about the idea that um, people are, in the same way as when they're dreaming, really hashing out what their stories are there and how to tell them. You know, and I, I really, I do think it, it's kind of a, a base, I'm going to say jejun because it sounds intelligent, mm-hmm. metaphor for writing. But I really do think that people tell stories because it serves that almost biological digestive purpose. Of, of allowing you to break down and to assimilate what has happened to you. Um, and, and additional proof is that we don't tell the same stories for our entire lives. We tend to tell a story until we've kind of completely pulped it of any juice for us. And then we don't tell it anymore. At that point, it's fully digested. Um, um, I did want to talk about the new book, Pygmy, congratulations on this book. It's, uh, I think, an astounding literary feat that um, you've managed to create this story where the the protagonist, the hero, the person we have the most empathy for, is uh, a middle school-aged terrorist who anally rapes a kid within the first couple of pages of the book and um, plots to obliterate America with a weapon of mass destruction. Plot spoiler! There is a lot of other good stuff that happens in this book, though. (laughs) This is obviously someone you knew as well. (laughs) The, uh... When I left my job at Freightliner, I found that I was waking up at 11 o'clock in the morning, and I was getting up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I really needed some, something that would get me out of bed bright and early. Or I was just going to get lazier and lazier. And so I started volunteering at a, at a homeless shelter where you had to be there at 5 o'clock in the morning to serve breakfast. And I went in. You know, again, it's kind of this relation autism. I don't really know how to present myself. So I just went in and said... What can I do? And I didn't explain who I was or anything. So people, eventually I found out, people started to invent stories for why this one guy was there at 5 o'clock every morning to make toast. And the story started coming back to me. And people would come up to me and say, are you really a child molester? Are you really a murderer who's having to do community service on your release from prison? The only way that they could rationalize somebody showing up at five in the morning was because I was doing some kind of halfway house community service that I'd been sentenced to for a horrific crime. (laughs) And I started noticing that what people assumed about me said a lot more about them. And so I loved the idea of writing a story in which the central character was kind of a cipher. His name's not even Pygmy. This one incredibly nasty kid who ends up getting raped is the first one that calls him Pygmy. And everybody just assumes that that's his name. And everybody kind of projects their own worst self on who they think Pygmy is. So Pygmy is, in a way, the scapegoat, the guy who's walking around under the burden of what everybody, of everybody's worst unexpressed self is. Um, and that was the, the genesis, was that uh, soup kitchen breakfast. And I should say um, that the same narrative voice uh, that you employed for those fairy tales is, is Pygmy's voice. I mean, that must have in itself been a real odyssey, capturing that voice, that dialect, and half the fun, I imagine. It was a blast. The, uh, I started with 
the ways that I would try to speak German. I didn't know the word, the German word for tomorrow or yesterday, but I did know the word for today. In fact, I didn't even know the word for day. So I would be saying things like, many todays ago, or two todays from now, or next today for tomorrow. And I didn't know the word for glasses, so I would say things like, ich trage Augenfenster. I wear eye windows. I just cobbled together my language. And so I just decided Pygmy doesn't know the word and, and he doesn't know the word the, and he doesn't, um, he doesn't know anything that's sort of got the uh, prefix of un, like unconscious. Everything has to be no happy instead of unhappy, or no conscious instead of unconscious. And he's, uh, he, all, he says things redundantly, like color red, or arm limb, or baby puppy. So I made some really hard and fast rules because I knew that when it went to the copy editor, the copy editor, whose whole life is about making things sound perfect, the copy editor was going to have a stroke and die. <laughs> and so if I, I, I gave pages and pages of this pygmy rules And I said, these are the rules, these are all the consistent intentional mistakes I made that Pygmy makes. So just stick with these rules. And the copy editor loved it. It was like a, a brand new game. You know how you invent the rules for a game? Okay, now the wood is lava, but the dirt is safe. <laughs> so if you touch the lava, you're out. You can just arbitrarily invent language that way. And like Jabberwocky people will still get it because that's what you want to do. You want to get it so bad. And I don't mean that in a dirty way. <laughs> you want to understand it so, so bad. And so if you make even half of an effort and you invent every other word, people will still get it. And it's so much fun. One more for you, and we'll get on with the program here. Um... I, I was telling you, I, I uh, got the opportunity to pretty much read your entire back catalog, uh, back to back, over the past couple of months. So I'm way amped up. I'm ready to fight. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I'm, I'm basically asking if you want to fight me. No. Um, now I forgot what my question was. No, no. As I was reading the, uh, all of these books, I, I was just like, I feel like this man must have a master list of ultimate social taboos that he's working on crossing off as he sort of slaughters these sacred cows one after another, things that you just can't believe he's writing about. And I, I wonder if there's anything left or anything that uh, you feel like is just too sensitive for you to touch. Oh, uh, I'm going to say the dreaded K word, the Kierkegaard word. There is that, was it that Kierkegaard that talked about dread, or was it dread or angst that is the thing that if you can conceive of something, you're burdened by that thing unless you either do it or you complete with that idea? I once mentioned in public that every time I walk past that door on the airplane that has a big handle, <laughs> I physically have to hold back. Because if I see that you can pop that door in mid-flight, I whoa. <laughs> and God forbid I'm seated in the exit row. Because then I have to spend the whole flight sitting going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> and when I mentioned that, a thousand people came forward and said, me too. <laughs> and so when you get sort of the idea of a hideous possibility... You can either kind of live under the burden of it, or you can find some kind of, and I use the term loosely, artistic way of having the experience, of fulfilling the experience without actually doing it. And so often, when I am burdened with awful stories that people have told me, just horrifically sad, heartbreaking, tragic stories, I have to do something with those. So I turn them into the stories that I, I've told you. You know, I don't want to live with that horse story for the rest of my life. And nobody in my family wants that told over Christmas dinner. 
So is part of my process to turn those stories into something so that I don't have to live under them. Chuck, it's really been an honor getting this chance to talk with you. Thanks so much. Aaron is going to choose a couple folks from the audience who have questions, and each person will get a, uh, a DVD for their question. So, Aaron. And you, you got a question? Let's see your hand. There's, there's the first hand I saw with the white cap, baseball cap there. And uh, here's the second one I see right over here. That's the only way, only way I can do this. Chuck told me that life isn't fair and not everyone's going to get to an- have their questions answered. But. You said before how um, a lot of your stories have come from like, different things that other people have told you. Where did you get most of the inspiration for a lot of the stories in Haunted, like, such as Guts or the Nightmare Box? Or... Oh, my God. Thanks for scraping the scab off that one. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the gut story, the first one was the wax story. Guts is basically a three-act story, and it's three anecdotes that, to greater degrees, illustrate kind of the same hideous thing. And the wax story was the first one I heard. It actually happened to a friend of mine in college. And he dropped out of college, and he moved away, and we never saw him again. He wasn't 13. He was like 27. The carrot story did happen to like a 13-year-old, but he had to get fantastically drunk in order to tell me that story, much you know, like when he was 30 at a party. And then he was horrified when I turned it into guts. <laughs> And it was a crowd like this. And I was halfway through that portion of the story when I saw his little horrified face in the very back. And you can see every feeling he had. And I so badly wanted to stop and say, Graham, relax. Nobody is going to know you're the carrot guy. The swimming pool story, when I was researching Choke, I was going to Sexaholics Anonymous meetings three times a week. And there was one guy who was just incredibly, incredibly skinny. And during some break, I said, what's your secret? (laughs) And he said, I have about three feet of large intestine. And it's because I've had a, a radical bowel resectioning. And I said, oh, where can I get one? <laughs> and he told me the swimming pool story, which had happened to him. And at that point, suddenly I had three stories that I could turn into a three-act short story, three anecdotes. And it's kind of like the dead horse one. Each one illustrates to a greater degree the same kind of anthropological smart event. And so they each make the same point. And so I just strung them together and made the gut story out of those three. And the nightmare box was uh, after one event, after this enormously long signing, a kid, and when I say kid, I mean anybody under the age of 35, he came up to the signing table. And I was so tired, and it was maybe one o'clock in the morning, and he had a a hefty garbage bag filled with something. And he heaved it up on the table and he started dumping it out. And he started throwing out these Polaroid pictures like he was dealing cards. And they all seemed to be these people sleeping like this. And there were all these kind of old naked guys sleeping or there were these kind of haggard-looking young women sleeping. And they were all just head-and-shoulder shots, but they were sleeping in what looked like these dirty, white, painted plywood boxes. You could see the wall. You could see their head against the wall, their mouth hanging open. Sometimes they were kind of crumpled up against this white, painted plywood wall, and mostly they were naked. And I'm just being polite. And I said, so what's this? And he goes, it's my art project. 
And I go, so what, what are these sleeping people? And he goes, they're not sleeping. He says, they're dead. He says, I, I work at the Fantasy Adult Video on Northeast Sandy Boulevard. And as part of shift change, we got to walk through the video arcade. And these are all people who have died in the porn booths watching those dirty movies. So they're either these old guys who have died whamming the ham to some porn movie in a filthy booth with all their clothes on the floor around them, or these meth addict sex workers who have overdosed shooting up with most of their clothes on this sticky, filthy floor. And he goes, we have a Polaroid camera behind the counter that we use when we've got to take a picture of somebody who's got to be 86. And before I call the paramedics, I always take the camera back and I snap their picture. And I am looking at all these pathetic, sad, naked, dead people who've died in the most sad circumstances. And when I close my eyes at night, I still see those people. And I can't forget that. You know, somebody will tell you something, and in a way your innocence is lost, and you can't forget that. So what do you do with that? And I turned it into the story of the nightmare box, because i got to do something with it. So, and every time I tell that story, it's further away, it's further digested, it's further digested, it's further digested. And now... I almost don't even see those pictures, but I still see them. So, yeah. Hey, how you doing? Um, my question was, I was really inspired by Fight Club. My question was, kind of, what's the, what do you see to be the sort of the yang to the ying of, uh, of Tyler Durden, of sort of that wanting to take apart the world in order to rebuild it? And I think a lot of, I think in this time we see that sort of happening. Society starting to crumble, and I'm wondering what would you would think is a, a direction we should go. Not to be too political or anything. You know, um, I really hesitate to say this, but you got it wrong. It's not about the world. It is and, and very much, you know, pygmy is kind of about this as well. How old are you? 32. You're 32? Do you remember that phase when you were maybe 13 or 14 and you really were unpleasant to your parents? I mean, you were really, maybe it was 15, 16, but you had those shouting matches with them and you said, I hate you, I wish you'd die. And it's that point really when you're passing from being that little child who has craved structure and has craved rules and you've craved a formula and a blueprint to do everything. Oh, tell me how to do it because I want to do it right and I want to do it right all the time. And you think your parents are so perfect and you think that they're gods and then you hit 15, 16 and you start thinking that they're the devil and that they're bullying you. But eventually you realize that they're just human beings and they love you and they are doing their damnedest. So in a way, Tyler Durden is you at 16 years old and there's a reason why Tyler dies so that you can kind of internalize that own control over your own life in the same way that eventually you don't hate your parents anymore and you accept them as flawed, wonderful people, and that you start kind of running your own life, and you don't need somebody to dictate absolutely every rule to you. So you sort of, you know, you reach maturation in the same way that the pygmy is raised to think of all Americans as evil devils, and everything has been dictated to pygmy. And over the course of the book, everything that he's been taught starts to break down, and he becomes more self-directed instead of directed by his kind of parents. So it's not about being Tyler Durden. It's about 
moving past Tyler Durden and being that self-directed person that creates the reality that you live in instead of complaining about the reality that you feel is thrust upon you. Wow. Okay, anybody awake at this point? They've been fantastic hosts. So instead, I would say there's a million recordings of me reading Guts on the web. And instead, I'm going to read the last of the bedtime stories. And how many folks have never been to an author event? Please come back to some more, okay? Thank you. Case study. Case study cloaked operative. Courageous female operative at once time undertook mission for to deliver emergency sustenance unto distanced, famished, elderly citizen. Attired in costume of appropriate modesty, operative adorned own self concealed within cloak with head covering crafted of red color fabric, provision basket for cartage bread foodstuffs, female operative embark upon foot, journey to navigate treacherous route amongst plentiful natural resources, much densely planted tree, Amid most dense forested journey, encounters cloaked operative, usurous American representative, credit card company, (laughs) disguised to appear as wolf animal. Apparent wolf make offer unto operative, promise for to carry burden of consumer debt charging solely mere 24% interest rate. (laughs) Such crippling interest rate. Such typical nefarious American money-lending institution. Seeming wolf tempt operative. Attempt for excite hooded female using decadent consumer goods, corrupt pleasure of of mealtimes spent in restaurant. Exorbitant priced sweetened drinks crafted from pulverized beans of coffee bush, mixed frothing milk, served with an extravagant single-use vessel crafted of paper. United States Wolf promise all needs, all desires to be met through utilization of such disastrous card of credit. Casting aside cloak of red color fabric, Revered operative, execute perfect killer kangaroo kick sock for cripple fake wolf. Operative, sink own nail of fingers for open all blood veins of wolf. So allow all every hot pumping drop jetting red color wolf blood for exit. Heroic operative, remove wolf head off wolf shoulders. Lifting head while showered in hot raining blood of money lender. Noble operative, full volume voice keening. Operative Victoria shouting... Bidding all best top, most noble operatives present, sweet dreams. Bidding, comrades, good night. Thank you. (laughs) 